Avengers, Age of Ultron is garbage, folks. Is it an alligator or a crocodile? I don't know the difference, and at this point, I'm too afraid to ask. Look at that. That is a werewolf. <laughs> what is up, everyone? Welcome to Den Geek Presents Marvel Standem Live where each week we give you the deepest possible dives on all the goings-on in the MCU, Marvel Comics, and beyond. With me, for all time and always, we have Den Geek News and Features Editor Kirsten Howard, Den Geek TV Editor Alec Bajalin, and we are pleased to welcome this week's special guest, the host of beloved podcasts, House to Astonish, Desert Island Discworld, and the war effort, Al Kennedy. And uh, it's a big show this week, but when aren't they? Uh, because we're going to be diving into what we think the MCU version of Secret Wars could look like, as well as episode four of She-Hulk, Attorney at Law. But before we do all that, Al, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your history as a Marvel fan? Well, I am best known, I think, for the podcast House to Astonish, which I've been co-hosting since 2008, which is its comics news, comics reviews, and I think what can only be described as sort of a bit of mucking around at the end, which is effectively a makeover section called the official handbook of the official handbook of the Marvel Universe. I have been a Marvel fan since I can remember, really. I mean, it's a very common thing, I think, for um, UK comics fans, Marvel fans, to see that they didn't get into Marvel things through the comics originally because we just didn't have the widespread availability of them in the UK. Um, so instead, we tended to get into them through things like Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends cartoon or the uh, the X-Men 92 cartoon, depending on how old the person you're talking to is. Um, mine was definitely um, Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends. Um, although I think for a lot of people that translates into this lifelong love of Spidey. And for me, it translated into a massive New Warriors fandom through the, the vehicle of Firestar. I think my first actual real Marvel comic, US Marvel comic, was issue two of the Jim Lee and Chris Clearman adjectiveless X-Men comic, which... I got when my parents took me to Glasgow one day, big, the big city. And um, I didn't know who any of the characters were. Opened the comic and there's a huge splash page of Magneto snarling. I just thought this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Then I turned the page and it's a double page spread of all the X-Men. I was like, who are all these people? Who is the guy with the stick? Who's the girl with the skunk hair? And all that kind of thing. So yeah, I mean that that was that was it for me really, and it's um, it's all been downhill from there. <laughs> I will henceforth refer to Gambit as the guy with the stick. Yeah. Uh, so thank you. This is going to be that's his power. Is he can find a stick wherever he goes, <laughs> <laughs> and he can look like he really needs a shower. Like yeah. that seems to be uh, <laughs> exactly. I see we're already off to a flying start here. You know, I also, Al, I have to appreciate, like, I n it never occurred to me until you brought it up that, like, Firestar's biggest moment in the comics, like, really did come with New Warriors, which was years after her biggest moment in broader pop culture, which is Spider-Man and his amazing friends, you mm. know, so. Absolutely. It's, I never thought of how, because while Spider-Man and his amazing friends was very much a gateway for me into the Marvel universe as well. 
I never really thought about it as being like, oh, well, Firestar, because, you know, because again, I was in the States, comics were easier to find. And it's like, yeah, here's Firestar. And then like, you know, by the time New Warriors came around, it was like, well, yeah, I've had enough Firestar. Like it's, it's <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, for me watching Spider-Man and his amazing friends, I vividly remember the very first episode of what I ever saw, which was one that had the lizard in, which is one of the reasons why I mean, lizards have always really been one of my favorite Marvel villains. I remember being about three or four years old and seeing this thing on the television and thinking, who is this dinosaur with trousers on? (laughs) (laughs) I see running around on the pavement like a mad person. I love it. And that is also going to sneak into my descriptions of the lizard going forward. So thank you, Al. You've already already successfully poisoned my brain and we're only uh, four minutes into the show. Um, So look, obviously we're going to talk Secret Wars and I know that's a big deal for you because you have a Secret Wars themed podcast that Kirsty has also guested on. So this is going to be interesting. Alec, this should be a a fun education for you because if you (laughs) thought the Kang Dynasty sounded bonkers... (laughs) Uh, Just you wait, my young friend. Uh, But before we get into that, we should talk about our sponsor this week. Diet Smoke is the solution to avoid those, oh no, I'm way too high moments. Diet Smoke makes Delta 8 THC, Delta 9 THC, and CBD products that are perfectly balanced. Their gummies, drinks, and vapes are not only delicious, they're guaranteed to give you that beautiful buzz you've been looking for without melting you into the couch. By the way, I'm just going to confirm this personally because I tried one of their Delta 8 gummies over the weekend and it was absolutely perfect for spending next few hours reading like two dozen Secret Wars comics. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) Diet Smoke extracts... It's true. Diet Smoke extracts their THC and CBD from American-grown hemp, meaning they can ship directly to your door. No prescription, no sketchy weed dealer, no need to even leave the house. Diet Smoke just released a bunch of new products and flavors, so no matter what type of mood you're in, they've got you covered. So if you're ready for that perfect high, head over to dietsmoke.com and use code DENOFGEEK, all caps, one word, for 15% off your entire purchase must be 21 and older to order. And look, folks, I know, you know, I uh, just talked about my own experience with diet smoke, but please use responsibly, know what you're getting into and have a good time. So with that in mind, let's see what I can, uh, let's see what trouble we can stir up <laughs> with secret oil. Shall we? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Wait, wait, was, Kirsten, was, this, was this endorsement a little too enthusiastic for you? I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to hold it together. I really am. What not everybody might know is that there are two massively important Secret War stories, you know, that are like 30 years apart, uh, both of which will, you know, uh, impact how the MCU tells this story. How, how are we going to explain this one? I mean, you, you got to pick i suppose which one you think is gonna be the the basis for i mean i would love it if kevin feige were just to pull a rug out from under us and say no we're not basing it on secret wars one or secret wars from 2015 we're gonna base it purely on secret wars two and the entire thing is gonna be about spider-man teaching the beyonder how to use the bathroom um incredible (laughs) frankly um but yes, I mean, I think there have actually been about blah, four or five different comics linked into the whole kind of Secret Wars 
um, greater expanse of, of continuity. And some of them are linked to each other and some of them aren't. But there are definitely signs of the two, as you say, the, the most famous ones, 2015 and the 1984, currently uh, turning up in the MCU. I think the, the uh, mention of incursions in Multiverse of Madness was the, I think, the first big real warning klaxon that there may be signs of the, the 2015 Jonathan Hickman Secret Wars starting to make its felt, presence felt. Yeah, I think, um, you know, first of all, confession, I've never read Secret Wars 2. Um, like, I still have not gotten around to reading Secret Wars 2. Um, I've only read the original Secret Wars, like, twice in my entire life. Um, and once was just over the weekend. Now, the Hickman Secret Wars is another story. Like, I really dove into that with both arms. Like, I was reading it. First of all, I had been reading Hickman's Fantastic Four and Avengers as they were coming out. And those were the stories that led up to Secret Wars. And then I read that as it was coming out. And then I distinctly remember like right after it concluded, like maybe a day or two after the, the final issue of Hickman's Secret Wars came out, I sat down and just read those nine issues in one sitting. And I was really moved by it. Like I was really genuinely like moved by Secret Wars in a way that these big, you know, often kind of dopey and unwieldy crossover event stories just do not do it for me. Like I consider that version of Secret Wars to be probably the second greatest event comic of all time. It's like that and the original Crisis on Infinite Earths for me. Um, so that's how highly I regard the new one. The original you know, your mileage may vary. Like I'll recommend the new secret wars to just about anybody, but like to somebody who's not, especially somebody who's not used to kind of like the density of, you know, bronze age Marvel comics, I feel like it can kind of be a tough sell. Yeah. I think the, the 2015 one is an extraordinary comic, just an absolutely spectacular. I remember when it was coming out and they kept, having delays with releasing the issues and just being like Alex Jones in for the, the next issue of the Secret Wars coming out. But it does have that thing, as you say, you know, it's a culmination of what was effectively a very long story that Jonathan Hickman had been telling across. I mean, bits of it go back to his S.H.I.E.L.D. series, his Secret Warriors, and, you know, obviously through his Fantastic Four stuff and his FF. Um, and then all the way through his Avengers uh, books as well. So it, it really is kind of the capstone to an absolutely incredible body of work. Um, and that's both a strength and a weakness for it because you know, it's got that huge richness to it. But at the same time, there's a lot going on there. And it's difficult to say to somebody, here's the collection of Secret Wars 2015. You're just going to start... Who are all these people? Why has this kid got a cheeseburger in his pocket? All that kind of thing. Um, whereas at least the 1984 version, as ridiculous as it is, as purple as the prose is in it, is very, very straightforward. And it's got all the big hitter characters that you would expect. Um, you've got your know, various members of the Fantastic Four, Iron Man, Thor, Captain America, Spidey, some of the X-Men. Um, you've got the, the great She-Hulk, of course, who has some great moments in the, the 1984 uh, Secret Wars. It kind of goes from A to B to C to D all the way along 
without having any massive disruptions or or twists that come out of nowhere. But the one thing that it's got in common with the um, the 2015 is, well, I suppose two things. One is this linking um, of the, the Beyonder across the two stories. Because the Beyonder is introduced in Secret Wars in 84, and then he is uh, key to, or he and his people are key to the 2015 version as well. But the other is that when it comes right down to it, both of these comics are effectively Doctor Doom stories. That's something that I think is going to be very interesting in terms of how they do this in the MCU, because we can't be far off of having Doom. I don't know whether the intention is that Doom will be in the FF movie or whether they're going to keep him back. But uh, he's he's a pretty key player in both of those stories. So if he's not going to be in uh, the FF movie or set up in advance of that, then they're going to have to do something else with who knows Kang or maybe introduce the Beyonder. Um, but it's it's going to be interesting. Kirsty, am I jumping ahead if if we if we dig into this Doom issue now, like or or, or like is that going to take us too far off base today? I got in trouble for not sticking to the run of show last week, folks. So I just have to like make sure that we keep it together here. No, I was I was going to briefly talk about the Avengers that were in both versions, but um, Al's probably <laughs> done quite a bit of it for me because I was going to talk about that Doom is really at the center of both those major runs. Like, um, but in the twenty fifteen Hickman Secret Wars, um, Stephen Strange is kind of the co-villain. Um, which makes sense for the way he's being set up in the MCU at the moment. It, it feels like, yes, we could um, easily see Doom um, emerge. And actually, we asked across our social feeds for predictions on who the Avengers might end up fighting as the big bad of Secret Wars. And the results were pretty surprising to me because on Instagram, Doom edged out Kang but only by a couple of percent. Um, Doom got like 43% of the vote uh, compared to Kang's 41. Um, on Twitter, it was a similar story with Kang winning like with 1% of the difference between him and Doom. And that was neck and neck. And this really says to me that although Marvel fans have been told that Kang is the big bad to watch out for, a lot of people aren't buying that Doom isn't about to hit the MCU in a major way and that he will be a contender by the time Secret Wars rolls around in 2025. How could this go down? You know, well, a battle with Kang could effectively destroy the multiverse at the end of Kang Dynasty and Doom and Strange could be there to pick up the pieces and put them back together as they did, you know, with Battleworld in the comics. So yeah, um, it'll be interesting to see, but I, I think everyone's expecting Doom to be along any day now, really, aren't they? I have concerns that because if if Doom is indeed the villain of Secret Wars on the big screen, like is two years enough time to establish this character? Because like Secret Wars 2015 in particular is almost it's like the ultimate Doom story. You know, it's like Doom is truly neither villain nor hero. You know, it is Doom at his doomiest. And, you know, I don't know if you can really do that without kind of like, look, we had four years, you know, more than four years for, for Thanos to kind of become the threat 
that audiences were craving and that, you know, we kind of knew he could be. And for like, you couldn't, you couldn't just kind of like have Thanos go right from his appearance at the end of the first Avengers and then like do infinity war two years later and have the same impact. You know what I mean? And I am a little concerned about rushing doom because this is, you know, probably the single greatest villain in the history of comics. You know, this is a character that the MCU desperately needs, like really needs to get right. And mm, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm a little concerned here and I'm fine with it being almost secret wars in name only and swapping Kane for doom or, and whatever else, like I would almost rather they do that kind of rush doom to the screen and, and put us in a weird position. I mean, there's that, there are ways of doing it. There is, um, if you start off Secret Wars, the movie with, you know, everyone that's around has a sort of collective sort of amnesia about what happened when the multiverse was destroyed. And they just think this is the way it is. And then slowly unlocking the mystery of Doom and and why he's in charge here and what's happened to them. I think that could be interesting, you know, but it, it depends, really. I mean, I'm sure they've got a plan one way or the other. Alec, is this just like Latin to you or what? Like, are we just like speaking Klingon at this point? I'm picking up like every third world. Word. <laughs> like I, when I understand the beyonder poops and somebody with a t-shirt in their pocket. <laughs> Everyone poops, Alec. Um, <laughs> I, so I, I will say that I one thing that's still not clear to me, <laughs> speaking in all sincerity, is what Secret Wars is even about. Um, and maybe we don't even want to go into that to, for potential spoiler purposes. Uh, but I can speak to the doom of it all, I think. Um, Mike, when you were talking, Andrew had that, that those panels behind you with um, doom just effortlessly vaporizing Thanos. I mean, that literally panel for panel, word for word, seems like it would be a pretty good introduction for doom in the MCU, would it not? Um, that's a, a nice, helpful shortcut to establishing the bona fides of the new big bad to just have him take out the former big bad like he was an ant. I'm going to go ahead and confidently state that's happening. I'm just going to lay my flag <laughs> down on that. Um, and we, you know, we never talked about this. I was right about the Thor um, Love and Thunder cold open. I called that. So this will be the second thing that I call correctly out of... <laughs> I don't know how many attempts. I'm not keeping track of the wrong ones. Mark it down. We'll yes. know in 2025, kids. We need a Marvel standum ombudsman who just like keeps track of all of these takes. <laughs> it's like the minutes of the meeting. Um, look, you're not wrong, Alec, as far as like Secret Wars is, is almost impenetrable, even for somebody like me who has read like, you know, most of the stuff surrounding it. The other thing to kind of consider is that just the name Secret Wars carries a certain weight among fans, particularly fans of my age, because there was also a toy line. You know, it's interesting that Spider-Man and his amazing friends was like probably the most popular Marvel thing of my childhood. There was no toy line that went along with that. And like super toys and movies and TV shows were not like this thing that was everywhere. But Secret Wars was simultaneously a comic and a toy line. And that was a lot of kids' first introductions to characters because, like, who the hell is Kang the Conqueror and why does he have an action figure? Like, I think that might have even been my first exposure to Wolverine was because he was he was an action figure in the original Secret Wars toy line. And the actual toy line had, like, very little to do with the, with the comic series it was theoretically based on, you know? Um, 
So I think there's a lot of kind of flexibility they have in, t- in terms of telling this story, but there are definitely elements of it. I mean, Al, what would you say are the key Secret Wars things? Because there are commonalities between bo- both versions. What are the key elements from both stories that you think absolutely have to make it to the screen? I think Battle World is probably one form of Battle World or another is going to show up. Because Battle World, yeah, that's the, the Secret Wars Battle World from the Hickman version, which is composed of uh, little domains and fiefdoms which have been taken from different alternate realities. And with Marvel playing up the multiverse stuff at the moment, I could easily see that being the direction that they would take Battle World in for the MCU version. But even in the original version, they had a Battle World, and it, it literally was just here is a world made of chunks of other planets, um, including uh, an entire suburb of Denver, Colorado, um, which the, the Beyonder just lifted off of Earth and dumped onto Battle World. There's a whole town of people who were just having to go about their business for however many weeks the superheroes were away. Um, and that's where you get characters like um, Titania and Volcana who... You know, the hilarious thing about those characters was they're created for Secret Wars at the behest of the toy manufacturer so that there could be more female figures. And then they didn't make any female figures. <laughs> <laughs> because it was so cheaply done. And this is the absolute God's honest truth. The same reason why there isn't a Hulk figure in the line. They were so cheaply done that it would have, mean, it would have meant making a second mold. Uh, I was going to ask you, can you break down... Let's just say the 2015 Secret Wars in a way that people who haven't read it, like Alec and maybe people who are watching and listening, can, that they can understand easily. Sure. I think trying to understand the 2015 Secret Wars easily is a very quick route to a breakdown. Um, but <laughs> the essential gist of it is that you have in the comics, as you have in the movies, a multiverse. There are alternate Earths and alternate dimensions and and all these what-ifs of Marvel. And they start crashing into each other. And when they crash into each other, the two universes which collide essentially are destroyed, evaporate. And so the Avengers from our dimension, um, in the form of a kind of secret sect calling themselves the Illuminati, um, decide that what they need to do is start eliminating one or other uh, Earth so that there aren't any more um, incursions. If there's going to be two Earths crash into each other, let's just take one of them out so it doesn't destroy both of them. And this gets them into all sorts of trouble with um, the other superheroes because, of course, it's a fairly kind of um, a cold way to go about it. But after this speeds up and happens more and more and more, what you end up with is a situation where there are only two realities left. And one is the regular MCU, uh, regular MU rather, and the other is what's called the Ultimate Universe, which is where uh, the character Miles Morales came from. And then at the end of um, Jonathan Hickman's Avengers run, these worlds are both effectively destroyed and the, the whole universe is ended. And then we get Secret Wars, where you pick up with this thing, Battle World, which is made up of tons of uh, alternate realities all kind of smooshed together cheek by jowl. 
and Doom somehow is the god emperor of it all. And everything would go fine for Doom and his grand vizier, Doctor Strange, if it weren't for the fact that a whole bunch of the superheroes from our uh, Marvel Universe had managed to uh, stow away on a ship that, that uh, stepped outside of the destruction of reality. And that brings Reed Richards face-to-face with Doctor Doom for the first time in this uh, battle world reality. It's the story of Doom learning that actually he might not be the smartest guy in the universe after all. And that's the kind of the, the Cliff Note version of it. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Which is why I, really, yeah. I didn't even get to talking about Secret Wars until about three minutes into that explanation. Like the rest of it was just talking about Jonathan Nickman's Avengers. But this is why I'm saying, you know, if you want what straightforward, just pick up the 1984 one where it really is just, there is the beyonder. He's just a big light in space and he takes a lot of heroes and a lot of baddies and he puts them in a box and shakes it. And that is the whole plot. <laughs> He's he's like the he's like the audience stand-in with the Secret Wars uh, toy line. Uh, he is. That's he's, he what is the he's the kid bashing yeah. the action figures together. Yeah. The whole thing about the Secret Wars concept at all came from the fact that Marvel wanted to do uh, a, Marvel got approached by a, a toy company to do a, a toy line because there had been a, a DC line that had been very successful. And so they focus grouped it with a bunch of kids and they found out that the two things that kids really, really, really loved and really like clung on to was secrets and wars. <laughs> <laughs> and so they were like, great. Secret wars it is. And that literally, that was how they named the comic. And then there are a few different versions of how um, Jim Shooter went about writing this. You know, his version is that only he, the great Jim Shooter, could possibly write something of this magnitude yeah. with this many characters. And then there's the other version where all the other uh, writers were just like, I'm not touching that with a barge pole. You can have it, man. Just go right ahead. So Jim Shooter, that- <laughs> also the Beyonder, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Another great villain in Marvel history. Wait, did I say that? I'm very sorry. Very sorry. Strike that from the record, fix it in post. Uh, you know, uh, Mindy Spotlight in the comments uh, actually kind of backs up your uh, opinion of this, Al, that the original Secret Wars is probably the easier one for folks to get into. He's a Secret Wars number four. It was my first hardcore introduction to the Marvel Universe. It's a great series to start with. What happens in number four? Al, pop quiz. What happens well, in Secret Wars number four? I <laughs> think what they're talking about here may actually be that Secret Wars 4, i.e. the Hickman Secret Wars, because there were three Secret Wars before it. Oh, really? I think, sure I think they're taking this? issue with me. <laughs> Only because they mentioned Secret Wars 2 in the very next comment. Yeah, all right. Nindy, feel free to correct us. <laughs> We'll circle back to this if we can. Uh, so, you know, the other thing, and we I know we really do need to get on to She-Hulk. However, uh, yes. Oh, see, no, yep. There's oh, a season where they four. drop the mountain drop on mountain the Hulk. Hulk. One of the greatest comic book covers of all time of the, the Hulk supporting an entire mountain on his back and shoulders with all the other superheroes lying around on the ground. Oh, it's an absolute peach of a cover and a peach of an issue. 
we do have to get on to She-Hulk. However, you know, Kirsty pointed something out to me about the original Secret Wars that I never realized. This happened when they were doing your podcast, Al. And um, how weirdly horny the original Secret Wars is. <laughs> it really is. There's something in the water on Battleworld, I think. Like, more people get laid in this one story than in 300 hours of MCU screen content so far. Yeah, like the main B plot of Secret Wars is a love triangle between Johnny Storm, Colossus, and a woman who doesn't really get to speak. And like, you know, Doom and the Wasp, like, like have a little something oh, going on. And Magneto and the Wasp? It's, Ma it's Magne Magneto. Magneto. That's right. Yeah. Sorry. That's right. Magneto wanders around his base showing off all his lounging couches. He's <laughs> like, I'm going to lounge over on this one and eat some of these fruit juices that I found. It's like, yeah, sure. You find things on an alien planet, you go ahead and just put those in your mouth, Magneto. I'm sure that will go fine for you. Uh, Code Monkey in the comments is uh, implying that Battleworld had the same sponsor as this episode of Standom. <laughs> and therefore, everybody was very chill about everything. And I, uh, you know, might be something there. But I've already done my ad read for the episode. Like, come on, let's... Uh... <laughs> This kind of stood out to me on my most recent read. I was, uh, you know, and like Thorn Enchantress keep disappearing to have talks, you know, and like. The Enchantress is incredible in the 1984 <laughs> Secret Wars. She spends yes. the vast, vast majority of it drunk. And I'm not even joking. Like <laughs> she, She's so fed up with the whole thing that she just goes off and and finds booze and literally just staggers from scene to scene completely half cut i mean her her most sober and most villainous moment is when she tries to drown a water spirit in a bath I, i'm not entirely certain that water spirits are particularly susceptible to drowning but um she seemed to think that this was a gore so i mean i don't have a great background in water spirits so I think I went, I've got to take the Enchantress's word for it. You have a podcast dedicated only to Secret Wars. Secret Wars, Secret Wars 2, Hickman Secret Wars. I assume the endless well, amount of crossover. Yeah, we, we, we did. Uh, the war effort was effectively a 12-episode uh, special project that we did for ShelfDust.com, which is a great uh, comics uh, criticism website. And we just covered the original Secret Wars an issue at a time but we have been talking about what we would do next. Do we go for Secret Wars Hickman version? Do we go for Secret Wars 2? Do we actually step to the side and look at Crisis or something like that? You know, where do we go from there? So there's all sorts of different possibilities. But I My mean, suggestion is that we do the Secret Wars tie-ins because there are like 50 for that Hickman run, right? Yeah. <laughs> there are so many. Some of, them are, some of them are so good. I mean, some of them are dreadful, but some of them are so good. <laughs> yes. Well, we should probably get on to this week's episode of She-Hulk, which was uh, certainly eventful. Kirsty, why don't you... Oh, the color switch. Love it. That's my favorite part of every episode. Our producer, Andrew, is so good. Um, Kirsty, why don't you tell us what happened in She-Hulk episode four? Sure. In She-Hulk episode four, a hack magician called Donnie Blaze is using the week's worth of mystic arts knowledge he picked up at Kamataj to wow audiences during his lackluster magic show, drawing the attention of Sorcerer Supreme Wong, who just wants him to stop using his sling ring to send unsuspecting punters to dangerous realms. 
Things come to a head when Donnie accidentally unleashes hell on his audience and Wong and She-Hulk have to come to the rescue and clean up Donnie's mess. Eventually, the magician agrees to cease and desist and Wong makes fast friends with Madison, a drunk girl who fell through a portal in Nepal after Donnie sent her on a wild journey in the midst of his show. Al, I don't know if you're aware, but the Standom crew has been kind of split down the middle on She-Hulk overall. Kirsty is not particularly thrilled with it. Alec likes it well enough. And I've been kind of, you know, uh, men's amends, uh, as, as the Italians in my family say. So, like, you know, this episode, I thought it was fine. I thought it was, you know, another adequate 30 minutes of TV. But, uh, Alec, what do you think, uh, what were your overall feelings about She-Hulk episode four? Um, my overall feelings is that it made me laugh again. Like that seems to be, <laughs> again, that seems to be the binary that said it, that's deciding where you fall on the She-Hulk spectrum. Uh, it either makes you laugh or it doesn't. Um, and like last week, which I thought was probably the first actually good episode of She-Hulk yet, uh, this week's was even better and it made me laugh even more. Um, I think Madison is maybe the most precious individual in the world. Um, I think uh, nothing bad should ever happen to her. Um, I stan her um, drunken ways. I just love how how cartoonish and interesting the the tertiary figures are in this show that have nothing to do with like the story at play. They just pop up to just kind of be cartoon characters and then go away. What if Madison is actually the Enchantress? Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know what though, I I am gonna go, I'm going to back you, Alec. Madison is great. I, I am more invested in Madison after her aggregate, like six minutes of screen time in this episode than I was in Stephen Grant after six episodes of Moon Knight. Like, like Madison is funnier, more engaging, less grating, less irritating like and somebody that I would actually want to spend more time with than one third of our uh, on-screen Moon Knight personalities. Sorry, folks, I need to get my Moon Knight jab in once a week on Marvel Standom. It's in my contract. Um, Kirsty, don't worry, Al. We'll get to you because you may be the tiebreaker this week. But Kirsty, what do you think of episode four? Um. Yeah. I. I. Th- I'm not enjoying the show. I. Uh... I've not, I've not enjoyed the four episodes we've had so far, but I'm delighted that other people are enjoying it. And um, just because I don't like it doesn't mean that, you know, everyone shouldn't have a nice time watching the uh, Marvel Lawyer show. That's great. Um, <laughs> two thumbs up. and I, I love and support you. Um, I hate this. I hate it. Um, I, I just, yeah, I'm not I'm not having fun. And I want to go home. (laughs) (laughs) Al? I have, uh, I've generally enjoyed the show. um, But I think I'm from, obviously, the bizarro world to uh, when you guys are from, because I think this has been the weakest episode so far. My main issue with it is that, you know, in the first episode, she looks to the camera and she's like, lawyer show. And it's not. <laughs> like, it's not a lot. The reason that she manages to save the day at the end of this episode is because she 
threatens a guy with a effectively a parademon. And that would have been the case regardless of whether or not there was any, you know, cease and desist having been served. You know, she says to fakey Chris Angel, um, are you going to stop doing your thing? He's like, no. And he's like, how's about I get you with one of these guys? And he's like, okay, fine. I, I do think that they have this fantastic opportunity to do uh, a kind of workplace sitcom within the Marvel Universe. You do have the opportunity to have your action set pieces and things like that. But at the same time, if you're going to do a lawyer show, do a lawyer show. I, I did enjoy this episode and I enjoyed last week's too. Um, but this show has all of the elements on paper where it really should be my favorite Marvel show, you know, because like one of my, my, my favorite format of TV lately is like the half hour semi-comedy genre show. So like what we do in the shadows, Barry, glow to a lesser extent, like, and I thought, I'm like, wow, She-Hulk is going to be that, but in the MCU. And it doesn't quite pull it all together. Like when I look at how what we do in the shadows nails every single element of vampire mythology as a whole, you know, I've been waiting for She-Hulk to like properly do that with the MCU and it hasn't quite pulled it together yet, you know? And like the elements are there and like Wong is helping, you know? But I don't know. It, it's it's still it still falls. So I'm still I'm still the fence sitter here. Um, <laughs> I was thinking earlier though about, you know, my favorite sitcoms and what they were like in season 1 compared to when they really hit their stride and like, a, you know, as they go along and I was thinking, well, maybe that's it for She-Hulk. Maybe I'm just finding it whatever right now. But if they keep doing seasons of this and we're on season three or four and it's really like hitting the jokes out of the gate and then they're bringing stuff back and there's running gags, you know, where I'm involved, like maybe it will hit home with me, but it just hasn't got there yeah, in this season. Perfect example, Kirsty. I mean, my beloved and departed Legends of Tomorrow was not the show that it eventually became. You know, like its first season, two season, like its first season especially, which I liked well enough to begin with, but like its first season especially, and maybe its second season, like Legends of Tomorrow didn't become everything it could be until season three, season four, where it just like, I mean, I'm going to use my, our one F-bomb of the week, but like that show stopped giving a fuck. Like it just completely was like, we're just going to do whatever we want every single week. And I don't think She-Hulk is quite ready to do that yet, you know? And I, I do want this show to succeed. I really do. I'd like them to to lean a little more on these characters that they are bringing in for the show itself. Because as, as Alex said, you know, the characters that are the kind of the randos in this corner of the MCU are terrific. You know, I think Madison is brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I, I just want to see her as this kind of uh, internally happy-go-lucky um dimension hopper wandering around with an apparel spritz in one hand and the goblin's heart in the other you know booze and viscera could be a, a really good motif for this one <laughs> <laughs> but the 
the difficulty that I had kind of with last week and this week, uh, both, is I get where they're going with let's have cameos from the MCU. But as much as I absolutely love Benny Wong, I think he's incredible. They can afford Benedict Wong in a way that they can't afford Chris Evans every week, if you see what I mean. And it just kind of, it feels a little bit like, well, who can we possibly get who is um, involved enough in the MCU that it's somebody people will appreciate seeing back? And we are, you know, eternally blessed with the fact that he is sensational in this. But it does kind of feel that Wong is being turned into the new Phil Coulson. Like he is an actor that is um, cheap enough to bring back on a regular basis, but who gives the universe a bit of uh, coherence. And that's fine. But then when you have the repeated point made direct to camera of, oh yeah, you love your cameos, you love your Wong, there'll be another treat along soon for you. Uh, and I know that for She-Hulk, the fourth wall breaking is a huge tradition and you know, I would never want to try to take that away from the character. Um, but I do wonder if, you know, three episodes in is a little early to be kind of knocking at its own foundations. You know, folks rightfully, and by all means, like people, you know, people give this to us in the comments and they give it to us, like, you know, in the comments here as well as on, on denigeek.com, you know, they're like, look, it's a comedy, like just let this show be goofy and do its thing. And fair enough. But like I pose this question to everybody on this panel right now and to the folks watching in the comments live, like, do the jokes land for you? Yes or no? Does this show make you laugh? Alec? Yes. Kirsty? Do you need, you don't need to ask me <laughs> if I'm laughing at this show. No. Yeah. Nungma2708 just said no in the comments. Al? Uh 50-50, I would say. I mean, I am a very bad choice to be your deciding vote here because I am effectively the in-betweener. Okay. Uh, Nindy Spotlight in the comments says, more often than not, yes, fair. Our producer, Andrew, said exactly once. Um, <laughs> I, I was very, very worried after episode two. Like, like So this is a cultural reference that Kirsty and Al, I don't know if you're going to get this, but Alec might. There's a particular brand of quote unquote comedy in the United States in particular that like really, really drives me up a wall. And it's the kind that you usually see in commercials for really boring products that are just trying to be really quirky. You know what I mean? And like the quirk is the joke. So it's like in particular, there are these insufferable insurance commercials for a company that I will not name but like Alec, you probably have seen them. They are advertised on like every sporting event on, on the planet. And like, that's what episode two felt like to me. Like it was, it was like that kind of, but you know what? Episode three, yes. And with the arrival, the triumphant arrival of Madison in episode four, <laughs> like I, I got it. I finally got some proper laughs out of this episode. Like, like Madison made me smile. Jen's to-do list, which one of the things on the to-do list is edit to-do list. And then in parentheses, it says two hours. That was like a personal attack, but I still laughed. <laughs> Kirsty is smiling because they know. Uh, so... <laughs> Yeah. So, all right. So it seems that it seems that the audience is more in favor that, you know, the jokes are working for them more than they might be for us. And fair enough. I just had to know, you know, so 
we're getting there. Should we talk about the, the dating stuff? I think it's kind of indicative of how maybe like all over the place She-Hulk can be at this point that we don't haven't really talked about the dating stuff yet. Like that ended up being a complete afterthought in my review um, when I wrote that earlier today as well. Um, that seems to be the thing that they thought would be like the absolute slam dunk best part of the episode. But I don't know if the show is like mature enough to tackle that quite yet just because like the, the conclusion it comes to of like Jen trying to grapple with the fact that like some people are, are fetishizing her or at least only interested in one part of her that she herself is not interested in is fairly heavy stuff and it kind of like falls flat in comparison to Madison and her two s's and one y but not where you think so yeah I think maybe it's a little telling that we, this hasn't even come up until now. Like, you, I think the show wanted us to lead with this and we just rejected it. I think this is a very rose-tinted glasses uh, version of online dating. I've been on a lot of Tinder dates and they are haunting and grim. And I have blocked a lot of them from my memory. So this is a very, you know... This is a very light version of Tinder dating, but no, I, w- I won't explain further. <laughs> <laughs> There'll be no more details. <laughs> I, I think Jen's experience of um, Tinder dating, uh, as opposed to She-Hulk's experience of Tinder dating, is an interesting point for the show to make because it is one of these things that they keep coming back to, which is that people look at her differently when she's Jen to when she's She-Hulk. And that will be in a professional life and it'll also be in a personal life. So I do appreciate them making that point. My only concern is, one, how many dates did she go on in how long a period of time? Because we saw her date about five people in apparently about two days. So um, she's very busy. Um, I'm not entirely certain she's spending the requisite time vetting these people before she's actually going with them. (laughs) Um, Particularly given that she she seems to be taking them to the same place, to the same table every single time. Um, Sorry, we we just got a shot there of one of the things that is my actual biggest pet peeve about She-Hulk's show so far, which is for the love of these poor VFX crews, please stop having this character pick up telephones because it (laughs) just looks horrendous um but yeah Uh, i i do i do wish that she'd had at least one mediocre date rather than every date being abysmal or if they were going to have every date be abysmal have the all the abysmal dates be more distinctly ridiculous and funny also al you're not alone lee just mentioned that he was confused how she went on so many dates in one night so like You know, I, look, I gotta, I gotta give them a little bit of a pass here. Like it's a 30 minute show. So, uh, you know, like I do wish though, like if they see my, one of my hopes for She-Hulk was that this was going to feel like a retro TV show in more ways. Right. And this does feel like TV, which is good, but like, I almost was the dating thing just felt like a beat that they hit this episode where it could have been a recurring gag, like over the course of a season. Like, I don't know if anybody remembers, I'm so old. I don't know if anybody remembers Murphy Brown, but like there was just like an ongoing gag on Murphy Brown where like she just could not get 
a, a decent secretary. Like she just could not get a personal assistant. And every week there was a different nightmare personal assistant. And I think, I think some of the She-Hulk stuff could have been funnier if just like every week, like we know at some point in the episode, Jen is going to go on a date and it's going to be lousy in some kind of way, you know, and maybe some of these would have, would have hit a little, uh, you know, a, a little better as well. This is kind of where um, like She-Hulk is almost like fighting against it's like the Marvel format to a certain extent. Like we talked earlier about how like, you know, sitcoms can go a whole season before finding their voice. Like the first, the first season of the American office and the first season of Parks and Rec are six, just six almost pointless episodes that just are completely um, different from what follows. Uh, She-Hulk like in a world in which the new Daredevil gets announced as what eighteen episodes, I feel like She-Hulk would have been better served as something that could have settled into like that more networky length of eighteen episodes, and then maybe it wouldn't have felt pressured to to shoehorn shoehorn in um, these kind of marvely like what if a superhero dated type things in the span of like one twelve minute B story. Uh, so it does struggle against kind of the traditional disney plus format um but again i'm i think maybe i'm more willing to give it a pass just because i thought it would be even less tv ish than it ended up being mike like you you had much higher hopes than i did and i feel <laughs> like you um you are surprised at it and like not being quite as tv as you anticipated whereas i'm just astonished that we're getting like just completely floored and astonished that we're getting legal cases of the week <laughs> like i just i cannot believe they're actually doing it i cannot believe they're actually attempting to make something that even almost approaches an episode of television sorry i thought you said legal cases of the weed and sorry we're in the uk where we can't get legal cases of the weed so <laughs> we're just high on life baby that's that's where we're at <laughs> No, and look, I know it's not fair. Like, I, I should not be critiquing the show. I should not be criti critiquing the show that I wish She-Hulk was. You know what I mean? Like, that's a. I know I. I always say I'm not going to do that, and I always end up doing it. So, like, um, you got to rein me in a little bit. But Alec, I think I think your I think your perspective is a little bit healthier than mine in that regard. Uh, also, I have to ask, Alec, as Den of Geeks TV editor. When I brought up Murphy Brown, like, does that, does anybody remember Murphy Brown who is under the age of 40? Like, <laughs> I, I, I've never watched Murphy Brown, but I'm familiar with Murphy Brown. And my mom used her as an example to explain what sarcasm was to me. Oh, really? Yes. That's perfect. <laughs> that's textbook. You know, I think one of the things that has prevented Murphy Brown from kind of like staying in the pop culture lexicon, Kirsty and Al are so bored right now. But like, I think one I had to sit through secret, like nine hours of secret wars. You guys can handle a Murphy Brown. <laughs> <laughs> but I think Murphy Brown has the moonlighting problem because it used a lot of like, like classic music in it. Oh, so, so like that has impacted home media releases that has definitely impacted streaming releases, you know? So I think, like Moonlighting, this is a show that has kind of disappeared from the lexicon because it's just not readily available, even though it was it was like groundbreaking and beloved at the time. Anyway, 
Join us next week for Murphy Brown standum, uh, which will just be me uh, and maybe my mom and maybe Alex's mom. That <laughs> would be mom. kind of cool, actually. Uh, <laughs> let me know if you want to see this. Uh, so um, is there anything else about Wong being, I mean, like, obviously, Al kind of talked to the practical and industrial reasons why Wong is, is a, you know, the, the recurring MCU guest star of the moment. But watching this episode, I was kind of wondering if there were any other reasons why it feels so important to be tying Jen to the Sorcerer Supreme in particular, or we could just talk about Wongers because he's cool. Like, what, what, what do we think about this? Al, I'm going to start with you this time. I think Wongers, firstly, he is amazing. And I will refer to him as Wongers forever from now on. Um, but I think that the great thing that he brings to it is the same thing that he brings to the Doctor Strange movies, which is that he is the, the grounded character who can point out the ridiculousness of something because he's been around the block and he's a little jaded and he knows what's going to happen if things go wrong because they always go wrong because superheroes get involved. So having that kind of character, I think, really benefits the show because you get to have this kind of Statlin Waldorf style little voice in the corner going, uh, this is a bad idea. Don't do that. Don't touch that. No, don't touch that. The demons will come to Ah, I told you. <laughs> that kind of thing. Kirsty Wongers. I love Wong. I think he's getting a lot more to do here than he got to do in Multiverse of Madness. I was uh, re-watching that recently because I thought I might have been too hard on it. So I, I gave it another go recently. And I, how many times does he just get hit with something, either magic or an object, and just launch across the room and have to roll it off? I, I dare you next time you watch that movie to see how many times that that happens to him. It's it's an excessive amount. And I just feel like he deserves so much more than that. So uh, at least we're getting to spend time with him here. And I'm never mad about spending time with Wong, really. And uh, folks, you all missed out because Kirsty was uh, unavailable when we did the Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness episodes of, uh, of Marvel Standom. And uh, so I got all of the uh, Doctor Strange venom. And if you think I'm hard on Moon Knight, <laughs> we got to do a bonus episode so that Kirsty can just unload on, on Doctor Strange. Uh, I'm glad you're giving me a shot, though. I'm not even mad about it anymore. I'm just... <laughs> anymore. <laughs> I got all out of my we, system. <laughs> we all have to go on record as to what MCU thing makes us the angriest. Like we just have to have that like written in the Marvel standum book of laws. Alec, what is yours? We don't I don't know yours. I mean, Moon Knight comes pretty close, but I feel like I'll cede that to you. Like I really, really hated Moon Knight. But if I have to pick one thing for myself, I think I would go with Falcon and Winter Soldier. Oh, really? Okay. Really hated it. Like wow. really, okay. really hated it. Okay. But Wongers, Alec. Yeah, Wongers. Well, he's, I mean, like, look, I, I, you guys have covered a lot, like a lot of it already. Um, I, I like Al's point of just kind of like the logistical perspective of like, you know, Benedict Wong being available. Um, but his character is also like just kind of available. This is the multiverse saga and he is the magic man who is not, you know, currently have like a third eye in his forehead like the other magic man. 
Um, so from that kind of in-universe logistical perspective, he should be around more frequently. And I think I think it does work. Like you guys have pointed out and Lee pointed out in the comments that he's a good foil. Like he is a straight man. Like he'll he'll take what another actor gives him and just like absorb it. Like just like be part of the scene. Um, and that's another one of the reasons why I think She-Hulk's like super duper supporting characters have worked out so well. Because we've gotten two weeks of Wong, who's just like this wonderful foil to whoever you put with him. I think Madison would be like 60 to 79% less funny if she wasn't bouncing off of Wong most of the time. I was going to say my great hope for uh, Wong and Madison is that we get to see um, some kind of shorts uh, of the two of them in, in the vein of the, the Thor team Daryl um, shorts that were on the, the Taika movie their releases so uh just you know five minutes of the two of them just hanging out chilling watching superstore whatever one thing i was gonna actually i know we have to wrap this up in a sec but i was just gonna ask if anyone else you know when wong said we've got them left over from the wedding did that say to you that um dr strange and clear had got married or is he just talking about some random wedding is it going to turn out to be nothing <laughs> i thought they were referring to um christine's wedding but then but that, that wasn't would, in Kamataj, oh, right no but it does suggest that um wong is an inveterate minesweeper who just goes around picking up abandoned bottles of alcohol and spurting them away <laughs> that actually sounds fine like but yak milk and vodka or whatever <laughs> Seems a weird thing for Christine to have a wedding. Maybe I missed something there. Sorry. No, I, I, that's the thing. Like the yak milk and vodka makes me think like this could have been, this could have been a clear wedding, right? But they wouldn't do that off screen, right? I mean, well, I mean, they, they would not, surely not miss the opportunity to put Charlie Throne in another dress that looked like she's just robbed Spirit Halloween. <laughs> Any other favorite Easter eggs before we before we start wrapping it up this week? Oh yeah, that's right. If you look at the uh, so if you look at the cases uh, on the you know that are that are like you know potentially on the menu there, there's a lot of different um, like all of the you know person versus person cases are uh, almost all of them are people who have worked on She-Hulk comics. But what they do is they mix up the various creative teams. So there's like a Lee versus Byrne, you know, there's, uh, you know, Charles Soule, who is an actual lawyer and who wrote a delightful She-Hulk run. Uh, like his name appears on there. It's, it's, a, it's a neat little catch. And considering that the name of the law firm is Goodman, Lieber, Kurtzberg, and Holloway, and only Holloway is an actual MCU character. Martin Goodman, of course, was the first publisher of Marvel Comics. And wasn't he Stan Lee's uncle? Didn't he hire Stan Lee? Because Stan Lee yeah. was just like some annoying kid. He was and a pure that, nepotism of, hire, yeah. Yeah, and of course, that is Stan Lee Martin Lieber. Uh, and Kurtzberg is Jacob Kurtzberg, who is in fact Jack Kirby, who did all of Stan's work for him. So like, it's, it's a really clever law firm. And then of course, all of their creator names, all of their cases are based on creator names as well. So... Uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. Oh yeah. Lisa's says maybe it was the green minotaur from, uh, <laughs> from multiverse of madness. who got married. I hope he's okay. I want nothing but happiness for him. Um, so I think that's it, right? Anything else before we go? Good. Cause our producer's ready to kill me. So that is it for this week's episode of Marvel Stanham. Al, 
Why don't you tell everyone one more time where they can find you, please? If you want to find out more about what I think about mostly comic books, but also really kind of shocking puns, then I'm on Twitter at House to Astonish. The House to Astonish podcast can be found at HouseToAstonish.com, um, which has also got a blog of blog. Remember blogs? Um, a blog that my co-host Paul O'Brien uh, does, which is a lot of uh, re- brilliant reviews on X-Men uh, comics. And you can also find my other podcast, Desert Island Discworld, um, over at desertislanddiscworld.com. It's basically half biographical interview, half book group, where I ask a guest every week if they were cast away to a desert island, what Terry Pratchett book they would take with them. And uh, if you want to hear the Secret Wars podcast that we did for Shelf Dust, then it's just there on shelfdust.com. Great. Al, thanks so much for joining us. I hope you come back. I would love to come back. I had a great time. And I promise I won't talk about Murphy Brown next time. However, <laughs> however, Code Monkey says that they would join for a Murphy Brown or Moonlighting standum. So, you know, Alec, let's let's introduce your mom to my mom. We'll set up Murphy Brown standum. Kirsty and I have a long history based on moonlighting. So, you know, it's uh, maybe this will happen. It's not going to happen, folks. Anyway, uh, folks, you should know we've got two big episodes next week. Uh, first up, you'll want to be here on Tuesday, September 13th at 4 p.m. Eastern because I will be doing a live interview with the legendary Alex Ross about his new standalone Marvel graphic novel, Fantastic Four Full Circle. So join us on Tuesday for a live and exclusive chat with one of the greats of a generation. And then we will be back right here, same She-Hulk time, same She-Hulk channel, on Thursday, September 15th, to break down all the new MCU announcement that we're expecting this weekend, as well as more nonsense relating to She-Hulk episode five. Now, make sure you're subscribing to us wherever you're watching or listening right now. And by the way, does everybody who's listening via podcast know that, you know, you could also watch us live on Twitch? You can watch us at twitch.tv slash TV if you want to see my face. You could probably barely put up with my voice. I don't know why you want to do that, but we'd like to see you. Join the comments. It's fun here. Don't forget to check out our web home at denigeek.com where you can find all our Marvel coverage. Go straight to denigeek.com slash Marvel for that. Drop us a line. Let us know your burning questions and what you want us to cover in upcoming episodes. We're at Marvel Standom on Twitter and Instagram. Give those a follow and you can yell at us there. I don't know. Don't forget, we also have a DC show, so check out DC Standom when you can on all major podcast platforms. And if you came in late, you'll be able to watch this entire episode on DennyGeek.com or at our YouTube home, DennyGeek US. We really need to change that. Don't forget... You can check out past episodes there and also wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks once again to our always patient Andrew Halley, the best producer in any corner of the multiverse. Thanks to Denny Geek's social media coordinator, Lee Parham, for keeping everyone in line in the comments. Go follow our TikTok at Denny Geek TV. Lee's doing great work over there, folks. And a special shout out to Michael R. for making the podcast version of this show all it can be. But most of all, Thank you all for watching, listening, following, and subscribing. This has been Marvel Standom on the Denny Geek Network. Until next time, remember, folks, we stand together.